Though this message can sit on its own, to fully comprehend it, it's important to have heard the previous one. A large part of both messages are from the research of Rabbi Jonathan Kahn. For those who wish to pursue this message in greater detail, contact him at www.hopeoftheworld.org and order his lecture series called The Harbinger. A shallow conception of the Word of God leaves us with a vague and incomplete concept of a lot of very important subjects. We're all thankful that even a little child can understand the basic truth of the gospel. But that does not mean that God intends us to remain in a childish, simplistic mindset concerning the rest of His Word. His Word, that is, the entire Word, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path and is necessary for doctrine, reproof, and instruction in righteousness so that we may be completely equipped for living this life. We forfeit desperately needed wisdom and insight for how to face the battles when we treat the Word of God lightly and only learn a few simple basics. Now thankful for those basics, John 3.16 3, is enough to save the world. But unfortunately, we've gotten the idea that saving the world from sin and from hell is all God is interested in. Well, he's interested in saving the world and reclaiming the world and establishing the world so that the glory of the Lord fills the earth like the waters cover the sea. That his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when we take seriously and search out the meaning of the Word of God, its signs and its uh, message for all aspects of life, we become what Moses referred to as a, quote, wise and understanding people whom the pagan nations marvel at and ask the question, from where did you get this wisdom and this understanding? Well, the answer is, you did cleave to the Lord your God and are alive, every one of you, this day. See that I have taught you statutes and judgments as the Lord my God commanded me so that you should do them and obey them. Keep, therefore, and do them, for they are your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations. Deuteronomy chapter 4. God establishes nations and God alone sits in judgment over them. Have you not known, have you not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, sits upon the circle of the earth, and the, the inhabitants are his grasshoppers? He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth as vanity. Isaiah chapter 40. His establishment of Israel as a nation is inarguable to anybody who has a, a modicum of understanding. His establishment of the United States, many try to deny, but they have the burden of providing uh, proof for what is really a, vap a vapid argument. To focus on the mere secular history of America and simply try to ignore the vast evidence that a gracious supernatural providence has been long at work in America's founding, freedom, and much of its productivity in the world for good is on a fool's errand. 
So when parallels exist between God's dealings with Israel and his dealings with America, that is not to say that all America does or all Israel does is godly. But it is to affirm that both nations are, above all other nations, signs of God's dealings in the earth and with the entire world. Just as Israel is a sign of his intervention in the history of the world, so America now currently is a sign of God's chastening judgment in the world. If we can accept these premises, we can learn why certain things are now occurring in America that will have ripple effects on the entire world. And those in the nations who fear the Lord can move with wisdom into the future based on these truths. The prophet Jeremiah warned Judah for an entire generation that the covenant that was their source of blessing would turn on them to become their source of terror if they turned away from God and refused his call to them to repent. We know how that story went. We may not know how the scripture describes the reason behind the eventual utter destruction that finally came. It's found in Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 20 through 21. Those who escaped the sword were carried away into Babylon. To fulfill the word of the Lord that came by the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths, for as long as she lay desolate, she kept the Sabbath to fulfill the seventy years. For the background on the meaning of the land keeping its Sabbaths, you can go to Leviticus 25, Exodus 23, verses 10 through 11. We can't go into great detail here, but let's just say that the Sabbath is not merely some obscure rule of Old Testament law that the New Testament saved us from. The principle of the Sabbath is woven throughout the life of Israel as a nation and still has its place in the life of New Testament believers, not as a law to be kept, but as a principle to understand. The principle of the Sabbath precedes the law of Moses, for it's located in the very creation story. The meaning of the spirit of the Sabbath is to exhibit humility before God as our source, and refraining of all activity once a week in honor of him. When Israel began turning away from God, it began with the turning away from the Sabbath. This is why Second Chronicles refers to the land being able to keep its Sabbaths after the destruction came. In Deuteronomy 15, verse 1, it says, At the end of every seven years, you shall make a release. And this is the way of release. Every creditor that lends anything to his neighbor shall release him from that debt. This is the Lord's release. So, rather than just seeing the Sabbath as a one-day-a-week legalism that we don't really understand as Gentiles, we need to understand that this pattern of seven is warped and woofed throughout the history of Israel, and though as a law it was only binding on Israel, as a principle, it's binding on reality. God used this pattern of sevens not only to maintain before the people of Israel an understanding of the need to keep their dependence on God and to take at least once a week 
uh, a day once a week to focus on their dependence on God and their relationship with Him. It also had to do with the whole economic uh, success of the nation and the uh, standing against poverty. For, for a fuller understanding of this, you need to just read the entire 15th chapter of Deuteronomy. I'm getting more and more questions lately from people asking what the difference is between capitalism and other systems of economic uh, oversight. And is the Bible capitalist? Uh, and that's too large a subject to try to address here. But we will say this, that if you read Deuteronomy 15, you begin to understand God's plan for how to address the needs of the poor. But again, it's too large a subject to cover here. Now, the word release in Deuteronomy 15, verse 1, in Hebrew is the word shmita. It means to release, but can also mean to allow to collapse or to fall. If you read the entire chapter, you can see the wisdom and compassion behind the command of shmita. There's great blessing in it, but it requires faith and obedience to God and uh, commitment to God. For in order for Shemitah to occur, there has to be a heart of trust in God and compassion toward the poor. The rejection of Shemitah means faithless and compassionless backsliding has taken place in the heart of the nation. Now, there's a prophetic sign in the number seven that's woven into this story. The day of the release, the Shemitah, occurred every seventh year and always on the last day of the commercial year of Israel, the 29th day of Elul. Keep in mind that on 9-11-2001, the United States entered a new era it had never known since the war between the states. Tragedy on a massive scale occurring within our own borders, signifying that the protection of God we had enjoyed had been lifted. We were under chastising judgment, just as ancient Israel had come under similar judgment by the very forebearers of our current enemies, the Assyrians. The Assyrians breached the border of ancient Israel and left the mark of their attack by uh, what Scripture describes in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 10, that the bricks have fallen and the sycamores have been uprooted. Israel's response was not humility before God to examine their hearts as a nation, but rather they decreed that they would replace the crumbling bricks with hewn stone. They would not replace the sycamores with more sycamores, but would plant instead huge cedars. All this was a way of saying, we are in defiance. Not necessarily defiance of Assyria, but ultimately defiance toward the God of Israel, whom they had offended, and whom they were in rebellion against, and whom had lifted his protection and allowed the attack to come. The United States followed the exact pattern after 9-11, even to the point of quoting the very same words Israel spoke, bringing the United States into full identification and union with Israel in this judgment. 
Ten years after Israel's declaration that they would not seek God and turn to him, but would rebuild in their own strength and in defiance, the Assyrians returned and finished what they had begun ten years earlier. So there was a decade of unfolding, ongoing warnings of coming final judgment that resulted in a final cataclysm for Israel. We are now at the 10-year anniversary of 9-11. If we had turned back to God in any degree, the national repentance would have been marked by a cessation of these unfolding warnings that began on 9-11. But we have not. Nationally, though there are many people who love God in the nation, we are farther from God than ever, and now not only far from Him, but antagonistic and openly blasphemous. You can expect to see, for instance, more and more open blasphemy woven into the daily activities of America. It's already showing up more and more in our advertisements where once sacred subjects like the person of Jesus, the atonement, uh, or the law of God, or activities of the church such as the confessional are being mocked and lampooned in the name of selling products to make money. So the warning signs have continued all this decade. When we take the time to study them, they become unmistakable in their meaning and crystal clear in their origin. Seven years after our own bricks fell and our own sycamore was uprooted, while we were commemorating the memory of that tragic day, a domino effect of that day was occurring in our economic system. The New York Stock Exchange experienced its worst fall since the Monday after 9-11. Remember that when the nation turns from the principle of the Sabbath by turning from the God of the Sabbath, what was meant to be a blessing becomes a curse. The Shemitah is for release. Its purpose is to put right economic injustices, relieve the burden of the poor, and maintain the function of the economy of the nation. It is undergirded by the sovereign grace of God, which supplies in the interim until the normal agricultural and economic system is able to go back into its proper function after the Shemitah. But if there is no godliness, then what would have been a release becomes a collapse. What would have been blessing becomes curse. Seven years after 9-11, on September 7th, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac collapsed. The Lehman Brothers collapsed in September 11th. The New York Stock Exchange lost 700 points, the worst day of collapse in its history. This all occurred on the 29th day of Elul, according to the Jewish calendar. Remember that the day of Shemitah, the day of release, cannot occur on just any 29th of Elul. It must happen on the seventh year. So only one out of seven 29th of Eluls is a Shemitah. Please note this also. The first total collapse of the market occurred on Monday following 9-11, September 17th. 
Seven years later, the second greatest crash occurred on September 29, 2008. So did you get that? September 17, 2001. And then the greatest crash to follow that, September 29, 2008, seven years later. Now our Gentile Gregorian calendar adds to our Gentile mindset uh, that might conclude something like, well, it's pretty close, but it's not exact. If it was really God trying to speak to us, would it, wouldn't it be more exact? Uh, it seemed like it would make more sense if uh, it happened on September 17th, and then seven years later it happened again on September 17th. Instead, it's September 17th, 2001, and then September 29th, 2008. Why the gap if it's a sign from God? Well, here's why. Remember that Shemitah only occurs every seven years and only on the 29th of Elul. But the Hebrew calendar is lunar, not Gregorian. That's why Easter is different every year from, from year to year. So guess what day the 17th of September 2001 fell on? Yeah, the 29th day of Elul. But seven years later, the 29th day of Elul doesn't fall on September 17th. It fell on September 29th. Now this makes the sign even more pronounced. Later, we'll show you another sign that did fall on the exact same day using the exact same number. There is more to this still. The number seven in this context is the number of Sabbath, the number of completion of a cycle, and the number of judgment. In this scenario, the stock market took a 700-point plunge. The Monday night of the crash on the Jewish calendar went from Elul 29 to the first of Tishri, the seventh month. An attempted $700 billion bailout was rejected. On the seventh hour of trading, the entire market lost 7% of its value. This was a loss of 777 points. What collapsed on this Shemitah? Stock market, housing, Lehman Brothers, and the beginning of the U.S. dollar as a world standard. All of this was collapsing on this day. Now, you remember the story of Daniel in chapter 5 of Daniel where Belteshazzar is celebrating with all of his government and using the uh, accoutrements of the, the temple uh, to wallow in, in their worship of their pagan gods. And a hand appeared and wrote on the wall, Mine, Mine, Tikel, Eupharsin. You are weighed in the balance and found wanting. This, this need for balance uh, is a symbol throughout Scripture of being measured and being found lacking. It's used in various other symbolic ways that would be a study in itself. But on September 11, 2001, the closing bell of the New York Stock Exchange froze for the week at the number 9605. 
On September 11, 2009, the closing bell of the New York Stock Exchange froze again at the number 9605. Now, an aside note might be worthy of comment that if you write the number 9 slash 6 plus 5, you get 911. And that might be stretching it if it weren't for the fact that so many other signs that are not stretching it are the handwriting on the wall. Now, I've mentioned before that everything in America is becoming more and more what it is. There were basically two trees planted at the beginning of this country. One rooted in the soil of uh, British Puritanism and Christian thought. The other rooted in the soil of the French Revolution and Antichrist thinking. Both of these trees are bearing their full fruit now. That's certainly not to say that all Republicans are Christians and all Democrats are pagans. But the philosophy behind the two parties though they may not be fulfilled in the behavior of their adherents, is rooted in these two completely divergent and irreconcilable ways of seeing the world. So there's a constant attempt to make George Washington and the founders of this nation into, at best, deists, and at worst, actually anti-Christian humanists. Never mind that history has no support of that thinking. We can always change history because history is written by the victors of the of the war. So uh, the attempt to rewrite history is constant. But some things can't be rewritten or manipulated. When Almighty God decides to pull the curtain back and begin to reveal the real nature of what's going on, when those two numbers, 9605, appeared first on September 11, 2001, and then again seven years later, or eight years later, on September 11, 2009, when the economic cataclysm was set in motion that was directly related to September 11, 2001, non-believers throughout the country made reference to it and said it was spooky, it was eerie, it was ominous. These kinds of words were used. Because to me and you, it may not sound like much of an impressive thing, but to people who understand the flow of the market and who understand the meaning of that final number that is established at the closing bell, they know the chances of this number being exactly the same uh, in reference to the exact same day and even having within its structure a possible reference numerically to the very event of 9-11 sent cold chills up and down the spines of many people watching. It's also interesting to note that regardless of who tries to manipulate history, uh, some things just can't be manipulated. There's too much record and people on both sides know the facts. They're irre irrefutable facts. And here's one of them. 
On April 30, 1789, George Washington set the standard for the direction of this country before Almighty God. After kissing the Bible and taking his oath, he was inaugurated the first President of the United States. It was not in Washington, of course. There was no Washington. There was only Mr. Washington. There was no capital city yet named Washington. So this took place in Federal Hall, which sits in New York on Wall Street. There Washington spoke these words, words which God Almighty would hear and record and respond to. Quote, We ought to be no less persuaded that the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. After his inaugural address, he then led the entire newly formed government of the United States down the street a ways to St. Paul's Chapel. There they prayed. They asked for God's protection and guidance over the nation. Now, over 200 years later, the 44th President of the United States, Barack Obama, chose to make his own address in Federal Hall. And in that address, he made allusion to the same words ancient Israel spoke. Obama said, America will come back stronger, for we will rebuild. It was a strange phrase to use in the context of what should have been an economic speech. But that particular phrase became the watchword for the headlines related to that speech all across America and across the world. Obama, we will rebuild. Federal Hall, we will come back stronger. Even Al Jazeera quoted it. Politician after politician continued to make reference to that phrase from Isaiah 9:10, either by illusion or direct quote, never bothering to read the whole sentence in its context which states, quote, All the people say in their arrogance and their pride of heart, we shall rebuild. End quote. Once again, this time Obama reconfirms the same spirit of arrogance which caused him to be elected. And there in the same place where the blessing was once invoked by the first president of the United States, we hear the current president who speaks far differently from his first predecessor. We become yet another witness of where we really are before God. For in the mouth of two or three witnesses, no one will be condemned. God in his mercy continues to give repeated witness that condemnation and judgment awaits us as a nation. But for the most part, it's ignored. Ten years ago, on the same exact spot that General Washington invoked God's mercy and asked for his protection, the manifest evidence of the loss of that protection came crashing down on the same exact spot where the prayer was prayed. For when the prayer for blessing is replaced by a spirit of prayerless, arrogant, Rebellion, 
than that which was offered as protection in response to the humble prayer becomes a manifest judgment in response to the prayerless arrogance. There's another point of the utmost importance and significance we need to note here. What happened in that first inaugural prayer meeting as the young country's first president and first government knelt in St. Paul's Chapel to pray to the real God, the living God, that is, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and not some innocuous fantasy God of civil religion. You can go to that chapel today and read a portion of what was prayed there. For you see, this old chapel was not damaged, though it sits directly in harm's way of the terrible event of 9-11. In fact, not only was this chapel not damaged, but it became the shelter, the resting place, and the supply location for all the rescuers and servants, for the policemen, the firemen, the chaplains, all the helpers on the day of 9-11. This chapel became a symbol along with the 9-11 cross that we've previously reminded you of, that the only safe place in the face of coming righteous judgment is the shadow of God's merciful presence. Every nation has a great seal. Israel's is the menorah. The United States seal is familiar to most of us. It is the image of the eagle holding arrows in one claw and olive branches in the other, covered by a shield, signifying our commitment to peace, our ability to defend, and our hope of protection in time of danger. Only God can protect So where is the great national symbol housed? Not in the Smithsonian, not in the White House, not in the Capitol. It's housed at St. Paul's Chapel, where our first government and our first president understood that our shelter and defense can come only from God. And just as God's great hand covered and protected the house where the symbol is housed, even in the face of impending judgment, So he will protect and defend all who trust in him, as the prophet Nahum said in chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. He will not only defend his own in the very day of calamity, but he will make us a source of help and rescue to those who cry out to him in that day. Just as St. Paul's Chapel was on the day of attack a place of refuge and supply and hope, so we will become a place of refuge, supply, and hope in the day of calamity that is coming. And it is most definitely coming. We all know in our deep hearts where we listen to God and where we live our true lives in union with Him that time is fast running out. I'm not an any-minute rapture proponent. I don't read scripture with that lens before my eyes, and I don't read history that way. The first disciples assumed that the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem was automatically going to be the end of the world, if you read Matthew 24. It was not the end of the world, but it was the end of their world. History continued on well past the fall of Jerusalem and the scattering of Israel. 
but nothing is clearer in Scripture than the prophecy that the regathering and reestablishing of Israel would be the great sign of the end of the Gentile age. So on one hand, I do not believe we are about to see the rapture of the church out of the world, though I would welcome it. But at the same time, I do not believe we can foolishly assume that history will go on as it always has. And what we are seeing now is simply some unusual but correctable glitch in civilization. This is no pendulum swinging back and forth in a self-correcting, balancing chain of events. This is not cyclical. This is a linear movement of history with all its convergings moving toward a climax. Everything is becoming its true self. This is the very meaning of the harvest. At harvest, everything manifests the fruit of its true nature. There's a clear separation, a clear making a difference between those who belong to God and those who do not. Now, I understand and appreciate the spirit of welcome and openness that many churches have tried to truly exhibit and demonstrate toward those outside faith in Christ. It's a right motive, even if at times it's not wisely performed. We are right to love the whole world the very best we can. But it's a real failure of love if in the process we end up offering them nothing of the real gospel and we don't tell the truth because we're afraid we might offend them with any message that implies a them versus us mentality. But the clear fact of both scripture and experience is the cross does make the difference. There is a dividing line. We can leave to the wisdom and compassion of God how he's going to judge those who may not have heard the gospel or uh, who have heard and misunderstood it because of the poor representation the church uh, demonstrated in the process of trying to win them. Our job is to make the message known and to live the message. Yes, we do it first in our actions and then in our speaking, but we must also make sure that we do make the message clear in our speaking. There are tares and there are wheat. There are goats and there are sheep. There's evil and there's good. There's darkness and there's light. And finally, at the end of the age, the scripture teaches that there will be the harlot and there will be the bride. And finally, ultimately, there will be Antichrist and there will be Christ. I don't try to answer the politically correct questions of many who feel indignant when we say that there's only one Messiah, only one God, and only one way to be reconciled with that God, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I do not feel any urgency to try to help God's reputation by explaining and even explaining away all the parts of the gospel that don't fit a humanist-centered, worldly-minded agenda. Jesus told us ahead of time that he did not come to bring peace, but a sword, and that he would make a difference between those who embrace him and those who do not, and that even some of our own family would become our enemy because of their rejection of him. The time of separation has come. The book of Revelation closes with the words regarding that separation when it says in chapter 22, verse 11, let him who is righteous be righteous still. Let him who is holy be holy still. 
Let him who is unjust be unjust still, and let him who is filthy be filthy still, because he's coming quickly. Again, leave to God who is and is not his. I've never found any good fruit in trying to take on that task. Don't worry about God being good and righteous and just and fair or not. I promise you he will be. I think you can be fully assured that he is and always has been and will be. But it's vital that we not fall for the postmodern humanist politically correct idea of inclusiveness that, in the name of love, ends up doing the most damning thing possible, denying the only way to life while damning people in the name of including them. The shaking time is coming to make a clear distinction between what is good and what is evil, between those who embrace the good and those who embrace the evil. And don't for one minute doubt that the spirit of Antichrist is quick to scream in your face, who do you think you are making a difference and judging between one versus another? Even your so-called Bible that you say you believe teaches you not to judge. Well, the Bible in no way, shape, or form teaches me not to discern, not to make a difference, not to judge. It commands me actually to judge righteous judgment. I'm only not to judge in the sense of self-glorification and condemnation of others. But to say that you love people and you don't want to offend them so you don't speak the gospel clearly is one of the greatest deceptions the church is falling for. My point in laboring this truth is that whatever is coming, whether it's natural disaster as the earth groans under the weight of man's sin, or whether it's man-made disaster, a nuclear event, riots, the collapse of sanity and the loss of civilized commercial activity resulting in terrible shortages, which will result in the explosion of the masses who already think that the way to get what they want is to riot and, and, and steal. You're seeing it uh, more and more across the world. Uh, by the way, orchestrated by Obama and by the Democrats who love disharmony and destruction so that out of the, uh, the, the confusion they can construct a socialist utopia in their own image. But remember the words of Nahum, chapter 1, verse 7, which we read a while ago. The Lord is good, and he is a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those that trust in him. God knows how to make a difference between those that are his and those that are not his. We saw that in the birth of Israel in Exodus chapter 8, verses 22 and 23. God says, I will sever the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there in order that you will know that I am the Lord over all the earth and have come among you and I will put a division between my people and your people. The word division there in Hebrew does not mean uh, I'll simply separate you into one group and them in the other. The word division there is actually the word redemption. Because I am redeeming them out of your system, I will make a clear distinction between those that are of the world system and those that are being redeemed to me, those who, who turn. You do know, by the way, that some Egyptians uh, embraced 
the redemption. And uh, there, there was redemption for whoever would turn toward the Lord. That's just an aside, but you need to remember it. In chapter 9 of Exodus, verse 26, uh, the hail came. But there was no hail where God's people were. In chapter 10, verse 23, there was darkness, darkness so thick that uh, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. For three days, the Egyptians didn't move because of that darkness. But in the people of God, uh, God's home, th there was light. In chapter 11, verse 7, he says, I will put a clear difference between them and you. And then the ultimate difference, of course, became the Passover and the blood. The bloodline drew uh, the, the point of distinction between those who are his and those who are not his. And that was the beginning of the formation of the people of God. Now, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, it says, The foundation of the Lord stands sure, having this seal, the Lord knows those that are his. So let everyone who names his name depart from iniquity. This is the time of shaking that we've been talking about for a long time, and the shaking is getting worse. But those who disregard the shaking and treat the warnings with indifference and flippancy and cynicism and condescension and criticism, who say, yeah, yeah, we've heard this all before. Even some who claim to be Christians who are living this way, and I, I run into them sadly more often than I want to tell you, they are actually fulfilling the Scripture's themselves. You know, C.S. Lewis said, if you will not be God's child, you will be his tool. And so those who flippantly treat the, the warnings of Scripture uh, with disrespect end up fulfilling the Scripture of Second Peter chapter 3, where it says, in the last days there will come scoffers walking after their own lusts, saying, where is the promise of his coming? Since our forefathers fell asleep, all things remain as they've always been. The sun comes up, the sun goes down, the market opens, the market closes, the market rises, the market falls. People marry and are given in marriage. People live and laugh and love, and everything's always just always the same. Do you think the people of Germany thought that in 1932 through 1939? Do you bet they did? They were in absolute euphoria. In fact, as David Wilkerson wisely and correctly pointed out, right before a total cataclysm comes upon a nation, God seems to bless it, seeks to bless it with an abundance of uh, prosperity. The goodness of God seeks to draw them to repentance. But Isaiah reminds us it's when the judgments of God are in the earth that the people learn righteousness. So the more God seeks to bless and comfort and give rain on the just and the unjust, the more people take it for granted that it's not God, it's just the natural order of things, and uh, blaspheme his name. Do you fully grasp the sword of Damocles that is hanging over the Western culture? Well, for those who do, and for those who take this word seriously, there are many great and precious promises.
But in order to obtain those promises, we need to respond to one of the clear warnings, again found in Revelation chapter 18, verses 4 through 5, that says, Come out of her, who is her, Babylon. At the close of this age, which we are certainly in, the city of Babylon symbolizes the entire world system. It's not talking about a literal Babylonian city, even if there is one that's built, which I know they're building. But that's not the point of this. Why would it say, come out of her, my people, and don't be partakers of her sins, so you receive none of her plagues, if it's talking about a natural, small, relatively small city in the Middle East that me and you aren't privy to, for heaven's sakes. Come out of her, my people, is talking about the system of the world, its grandiosity, its arrogance, its bloodlust, its mistreatment, its selling of the bodies and souls of men, its merchandising in things that uh, it has no right to even own, much less barter over. It says, for her sins have reached heaven, and God has remembered, remembered her iniquities. So what can you do in the midst of this? Well, Psalm 1 verse 6 says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked is going to perish. So make sure you're walking with him. Make sure you're in right relationship with him. Psalm 86 verse 7 says, In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you and you will answer me. Psalm 118 verse 4 through 6 says, Let those who fear the Lord say that his mercies endure forever. I called upon the Lord in my distress. He answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear what men can do to me. The Lord is for me. The Lord is for you. Now, listen, forgive me. I, I know people who listen to Nightlight are, are very, very unlikely to be people who treat the words of the Word of God lightly. And uh, I'm preaching to you all of a sudden like you're in some kind of rebellious disconnect with God that needs to be repaired. That's not my heart towards you at all. But I do want to make sure that you don't lapse into the dangerous position of saying, okay, yeah, Clay, I know all this. I've heard it before and uh, I'm with you. You know, I don't, I don't really want you to be with me. I just want to, dist I want to disturb you if you're disturbable. If you're not disturbable, then nothing I say is going to bother you here. But I keep running into people that I think would know better who are sound asleep or at least nodding off. And any mention of the things that I've spent this hour talking about just uh, irritates them. It just uh, it bothers them. I can tell with with the reactions, uh, and and I hear so often people are saying, you know, yeah, but we've heard all this for years, you know, back in the seventies, and then they'll give some example of back in the seventies. They, they see Americans especially. I don't know that British people would have this problem because you have a, a much more mature understanding of history. You don't call a two hundred year old house an ancient dwelling. Uh, we do. We talk about the ancient houses of Boston. <laughs> Makes British people rightly laugh. But when you don't have a, an understanding of history and, a, and a, a, view, a large view of history, you tend to think of the 70s as a long time ago. 
but it was only just a few days ago, relatively speaking. I can tell you that the spirit of prophetic awakening, uh, awareness that awoke me when the Iranian crisis broke open and our people were taken captive by the Ayatollah, I was awakened at that moment to the fact that this was the beginning of the end. Now, did it, it's taken all these years to come to the place that we are now. But if you understand the prophetic, if you under you, you read you read the prophets, if you read the minor so-called minor prophets, they're not minor prophets. They're they're I hate that phrase. I don't know why we ever coined that phrase, minor prophets. Read the little books in the Old Testament. They're not minor, they're major. They're just not as long as Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, so they end up being labeled minor prophets. But the fact is, they're speaking the major truth of God just as clearly as the other books are. But when you read them, they are speaking in the prophetic anointing that causes them to be in the moment of the fulfillment of that prophecy. So they're writing as if it's occurring right now. Chronologically, it may not have uh, been fulfilled for a decade or two decades or four decades. But four decades is only long if you're in your 20s. If you're in your 50s or 60s or 70s, you know that four decades is not a long time anymore. You're not even talking about a complete cycle of a generation. And the countdown is now at its fastest pace. There's never been a time like the time we're living in now. If you're walking down a country lane listening to this on a, a headphone set or you're driving through a nice quiet part of of the countryside listening to, to this on a CD or whatever, if there's atmosphere of joy and peace around you, I'm thankful that you have access to that kind of atmosphere. But don't let that dissuade you from paying attention to the close and approaching and ever-increasing danger that we are in as a culture. And then remember that God knows how to make a difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. Psalm uh, 118, verse 4 through 6, we just quoted to you. Let those who fear the Lord say that his mercies endure forever. I called upon the Lord in my distress. He answered me and set me in a large place. I will not fear what men can do if I fear the Lord. Proverbs 1, verse 32 and 33 says, For the ease of the foolish will slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoever listens to me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from the fear of evil. Psalm 112, verse 5 through 8. You ought to read the whole chapter, Psalm 112. For the righteous light will arise in darkness. For the righteous light will arise in darkness. I cannot and would not attempt to give you a blueprint of what to do. I've made suggestions. They're, they're just common sense suggestions based on the wisdom of Proverbs 27, which says a wise man sees the danger coming and makes preparation for it, and a fool doesn't. That's not heavy 
theology. That's just spiritual common sense. I think you should do whatever the Holy Spirit directs you to do to prepare in the, in the event of the interruption of goods and services so that you have enough to survive uh, a short-term uh, difficulty and you have enough to give to others. Only you and the Holy Spirit can sort out how much, what, how long, all that stuff. You need to listen to God. But for the righteous, light will arise in the midst of darkness. Doesn't mean you won't have darkness, but light arises for us in the midst of it. God will be gracious and full of compassion and just. And so he expects us to be gracious, full of compassion and just. So make sure you're preparing your heart not to be overrun with fear and thus cause you to behave like pagans, but to, be, but to be, have the spirit of peace and wisdom to know how to behave yourself in the midst of any crisis. For God will show favor and lend to, to people. He expects you to show favor and lend. The righteous, it says, guide their affairs with wisdom. He shall not be afraid of bad news. A righteous man or woman guides their affairs with wisdom, and they're not afraid of bad news. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. He will not fear, but will see the defeat of his enemies. He has given to the poor. Now, this is a picture. Psalm 112 is a picture of what we are to be like in the midst of danger, darkness, destruction, whatever comes. Why? Because Romans 5.17 says, We reign in life by Christ Jesus. And Romans 8 says, in the closing verses of that chapter, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And perfect love casts out all fear. So if you're walking in the understanding of the love of God, his love for you, then you're not afraid, even in the face of danger, peril, sword, famine, pestilence, angels, archangels, things present, things past, things to come. Nothing can separate you from his love, and perfect love casts out fear. So the righteous man is not afraid of bad news. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. He will not fear, but will see the defeat of his enemies. And in the midst of that, he'll be giving to the poor. Well, Revelation chapter 1, verse 6 says that we, me and you, are a kingdom of priests. What is a kingdom of priests? That's people who rule through priestly interaction. A priest stands before God on behalf of men and stands before men on behalf of God. So we rule in life by Christ Jesus. How? By being a kingdom of priests. How do you do that? By listening to God and speaking to men on behalf of God and then seeing the brokenness of men and women around us and crying out to God on their behalf because they don't know how to pray for themselves. And in the midst of that, Spirit will be fulfilling the, the, the word of Isaiah chapter 32, which says, A king shall reign in righteousness, and, rule, and rulers shall rule in justice. Uh, the idea here is that there's, there's a king who reigns in righteousness, and those who rule under him rule with justice. Well, this is 
technically speaking of Hezekiah and his government, but it has a prophetic uh, power in it that reaches beyond Hezekiah and is a, a picture of the Messiah and the kings that are ruling with him. He is king of kings, and we are the kings who rule under him. We always think about being kings in the millennium, but I'm going to tell you what this is talking about, uh, millennium or not, with all due respect to the millennium, it's talking about us reigning with Christ now. Romans 5 says we reign in life now by Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1 says we're seated with him in heavenly places now, and we are far above all principalities and powers now. And I believe in the shaking, the, the purging, and the cleansing that will come in the hearts of millions of God's people is going to set us in position to begin to take seriously these scriptures that we've just read kind of with a blasé indifference. And we're going to begin to embrace those truths for real. We're going to see ourselves in the midst of tragedy and trauma and difficulty and uh, natural disaster, whatever word you want to use. You're going to see God's people being moved upon by the Spirit to go out in the midst of that brokenness and to bring life and light and healing. And I believe that Isaiah 32.1 is a picture of that. The king reigns in righteousness and his under rulers rule in justice and those under rulers, it says, it describes them. It says, a man shall be a hiding place from the wind and a shelter from the storm as rivers of water in a dry place and as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. That's what you and I are to be for those around us. Now, in the closing minutes that we've got, I want to read to you one uh, entire psalm. I mean, every one of the psalms. So many, not everyone, but so many of the Psalms speak directly to these issues. And I know that uh, you know that. We, we turn to the Psalms in time of personal problems and uh, private dilemmas. And uh, some of us maybe have experienced turning to the Psalms in times of national distress. If we've served in countries where there's been total disruption and, and loss of common sense and craziness just running rampant. You've turned to the Psalms then. Well, here's a Psalm that speaks to us in the midst of the battles that we're about to face and are already facing in some circles. Psalm 94 says, the Lord is a God who avenges. God avenge and shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Pay back to the proud what they deserve. How long, Lord, will the wicked, how long will the wicked be jubilant? They pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers are full of boasting. They crush your people, Lord. They oppress your inheritance. They slay the widow and the foreigner. They murder the fatherless. They say, the Lord doesn't see. The God of Jacob takes no notice. Take notice, you senseless ones among the people. You fools, when will you become wise? Does he who fashioned the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? Does he who disciplines nations not punish? Does he who teaches mankind lack knowledge? The Lord knows all human plans. He knows that they are futile. Blessed is the one you disciple, Lord, the one you discipline, the one you teach from your word. 
You grant them relief from days of trouble till a pit is dug for the wicked, for the Lord will not reject his people. He will never forsake his inheritance. Judgment will again be found founded on righteousness. There's a verse you can hold on to. Judgment will again be founded on righteousness. And all the upright in heart will follow it. Who will rise up for me against the wicked? Who will take a stand for me against evildoers? Unless the Lord had given me help, I would soon have dwelt in the silence of death. When I said, my foot is slipping, your unfailing love, Lord, supported me. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. Can a corrupt government be allied with you? A throne that brings on misery by its decrees? The wicked band together against the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. The Lord has become my fortress and my God, the rock in whom I take refuge. He will repay them for their sins and destroy them for their wickedness. The Lord our God will destroy them. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, well, we shouldn't be thinking in terms of their destruction. We should be thinking in terms of their their redemption. I agree with that, but it's Scripture that I'm quoting here. Say, so, well, yeah, it's, it's Old Testament. Yeah, well, it's funny how the Psalms are great comforts to us in times of trouble, but when we don't really agree with them, they all of a sudden becomes Old Testament. The fact is, folks, we, we love the whole world, and we try to bring as many to Christ as God grants us the power and the opportunity to do. But we are entering now, as I said in the beginning of this last few minutes, we are entering into the time of separation. The ultimate separation is the judgment. So ask God to give you the grace to be a rock in a weary land for people and and bring as many under the shadow of that rock in, in Christ as you can. Thanks for listening. God bless you all. Lord willing, we'll, we'll speak again together later.